as we turn to James chapter 2, we might be wrongly misled into thinking that James is going into a completely different section, that he is starting something completely different, leaving behind what he had done before, but that's not the case at all. He's not transitioning on to something new. He's just elaborating on his explanation of true religion. He's elaborating on what it means to be not just a hearer of the word, but also a doer of the word. He's explaining what it means to remain unstained by the world. And he does this by providing an illustration where the church is stained by the world. They're marked by the world's value systems. And for that reason, they can't be said to be doers of the word. So he'll begin with an illustration that demonstrates the infiltration of the world's values into the church, and then he's going to condemn it and then give some reasons why we should not allow this to happen. He'll explain why this is antithetical to what God is doing in the world. So we'll begin with his assertion that faith and favoritism do not mix. Faith and favoritism do not go together. He starts in verse 1, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have been born by the word of truth must not show favoritism as they do the word, as they work out their faith in their lives. This is because God the Father does not show favoritism. He's without partiality. That's what texts like Romans 2.11 and Ephesians 6.9 and Colossians 3.25 tell us. There is no favoritism in God. We also should not show favoritism because Jesus, our elder brother, did not show favoritism either. This is demonstrated in the Gospels, in the record of his life. Jesus showed favoritism to no one. So for that reason, favoritism has no place among Christians. Faith and favoritism don't mix. Now, the term rendered favoritism here is sometimes translated as partiality in other translations. It's the same thing. It's an idiomatic phrase that communicates a favorable reception of a person based on their external appearances. So um, it's this idea that how someone looks on the outside, what's outwardly facing, will define their reception in a particular place. So to show favoritism is to make an unjust distinction between people based on external metrics. It's showing favorable treatment to one person and not someone else because of the way that they appear. Faith and favoritism do not mix. James, I just provided you with a definition of favoritism. James doesn't define it in a dictionary sort of way. Instead, he gives us a colorful illustration. He's going to give us something that's a lot like a parable of Jesus, a short story that's filled with hyperbolic language, colorful pictures, and aphorisms all together in, in one. So James is not responding to a particular situation. This isn't like when you read 1 Corinthians and Paul is addressing a problem in the church. James is writing to a bunch of churches about a general problem that churches might be inclined to participate in, a temptation that faces everyone, and that's the temptation to show favoritism. So in this illustration that Ben read for us, two people 
come into a gathering of Christians. One person is wearing a shiny gold ring. He's dressed in really fine clothes. He's displaying his wealth and power and privileged position in society by the way that he's dressed. At the same time, another person walks into the gathering of Christians, but this person is in filthy, shabby clothes. Well, the greeter at the door, the Christians in the building, recognize the differences between these two people, and they look with favor on the person in nice clothes, and they welcome him into the VIP section of the church. They give him the best seat in the house while ushering the poor person to the standing room only section. So this is the parable, the illustration that James gives. He follows it up with a word of condemnation. Christians who make a distinction based on external metrics of wealth and power and social acceptability are setting themselves up as judges over the value of that person, and they're doing so improperly. They become judges with evil thoughts. So when we're trying to understand this parable, we need to take into consideration the the world at that time where honor and shame were a really, really big deal. So if someone is treated favorably in this social setting, they're, they're receiving a lot of honor, they're being elevated, perhaps in a way that's somewhat lost on us, but I don't think that it's totally lost on us. I think sometimes we talk about things being worse in the olden days of the Bible because of their culture, when in fact we operate with pretty much the same cultural values where honor and shame are really, really important. So I think we could recast the same parable for the modern day. You could imagine that someone walks into our lobby on a Sunday morning after parking their Tesla in the lot. They walk in dressed in fashionable clothes, wearing a Rolex walks, a Louis Vuitton jacket, carrying a beautiful goatskin Bible, wearing shiny shoes. And right behind them, a poor person drops his bicycle off at the front door wearing a dirty white t-shirt and basketball shorts. As he walks in, doesn't smell very good, has greasy hair, stains of nicotine on his teeth. And as you're faced with the option of who to greet, you make a beeline for the person in fine clothes. You warmly welcome them. You invite them to sit with you as you tell them all the great things about our church. You step away with some unease as you see that poor, dirty person still standing in the lobby, hoping that someone else will deal with them. And hopefully, hopefully we have armed security that's going to keep an eye on them. They might steal some. Well, if you've done that, haven't you made a distinction based on external appearances and become a judgmental person with evil thoughts? That's a modern recasting of this story. In James's ancient context and in ours, these stories might be somewhat exaggerated, but they're not too far outside the realm of possibility or reality. But what's even worse, perhaps, in our modern context is that the poor person would not even dare to enter into a Christian church. This way of identifying and relating to people that's based on their external appearances. 
that is based on their social desirability has no place in God's kingdom, and it has no place in the church, regardless of how acceptable it is in our culture at large. James asserts you can't hold on to the faith in Jesus and show favoritism at the same time. These two things do not mix. Now, he moves on to defend this assertion. He's going to give us first a logical explanation of why faith and favoritism can't go together. And fundamentally, he's going to explain that favoritism is irrational for the Christian. It doesn't fit with the way that God works in this world. So after insisting that favoritism and faith in Christ don't go together, he launches this argument that's made up in three parts. First, God chose the poor. So it's irrational for us to choose the wealthy. Because listen, my dear brothers and sisters, be quick to hear what I'm about to say and slow to speak in your response. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Here, James is recalling Jesus's teaching in what we call the Beatitudes, where he declared that blessed are the poor because the kingdom of God is theirs. It's the same thing that Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians when he observes that God has chosen out of what is insignificant and despised in the world to be his people. He has chosen those that are viewed as nothing so that he can bring about what is viewed as something as what it really is. It's nothing in his presence. No one will be able to boast in his presence because God continually and consistently calls to himself the poor and outcast in this world. God inverts the standard order of society. Those who are poor, disregarded, counted as worthless in our world won't be so in the kingdom of God. This is because in God's kingdom, he equalizes the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless. So here's the argument of why favoritism is irrational based on God's own choosing. If in the kingdom of God, the rich and the poor share the same status, then why in the church are we making distinctions between the rich and the poor? If God has chosen to build the church of Jesus Christ by adding to it the poor and the outcast, why would we reject them in favor of the ones that categorically God has not chosen? We need to have a quick side note here because you might immediately be thinking, so are any rich people Christians? Are all poor people Christians? Well, we need to attend to James' qualification, where he identifies the poor as heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him. So fundamentally, what brings you into God's kingdom isn't your wealth or your poverty, but your love for God. But the complicating factor is that wealth often prohibits us from loving God more than we love the world and its value system. Wealth is a greater obstacle to loving God than poverty is. So James can talk about God choosing the poor, even though those poor still have to come to love God to enter into the kingdom. So ultimately, it's about our hearts 
not our external appearances. And really, that's the very thing that James is getting into in this whole issue of favoritism. We are not to look on the outward, but we're to receive people based on who they are in Christ and in their image-bearing capacity so they bear the divine likeness of God. But back to the logic of the argument, James concludes that if God has chosen the poor, he's offered them belonging in the kingdom, then why do Christians dishonor them by refusing to offer them belonging in the church? Trying to build the church through pandering to the rich is simply irrational because it doesn't fit with God's program or his agenda. The church has always been and always will be comprised primarily of the poor. So we offer them belonging. We don't require them to look wealthy or put together. We don't require them to be desirable by the standards of the world. So reason number one, that favoritism is irrational, is that God chose the poor to because the wealthy generally will still cling to their riches, even if you show them favoritism. So James cuts off any reasoning that showing favoritism to the wealthy will result in the flourishing of the church. So the thinking might go that if Christians pander to the wealthy, then the wealthy will respond by providing them financial backing. So maybe some would even reason that discriminating against the poor in the presence of the wealthy is actually for the good of the poor because it will give us money so then we can care for them. Well, James preempts this reasoning by pointing out that the wealthy cling to their wealth. They're not going to let it go just because you gave them the cushiest seat in the building. Worse, the wealthy don't simply cling to their wealth. They generally squeeze money out of people wherever they can even if the people who owe them money can't afford it. So James does this with the rhetorical question, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Probably referencing the practice of wealthy people dragging their debtors into court and then sending them off to debtor's prison when they couldn't pay their, what, what they owed. Showing favoritism is irrational because it really never pays off. You're not going to find wealthy people diverting their money to Christian causes and kingdom work because you show them favoritism. If anything, you're going to find yourself captivated and in their debt. So it's irrational to show favoritism to the the wealthy. But then third, he argues that the wealthy are those who most often disparage Christ. So he sidelines the notion that showing favoritism will bring any sort of social credibility to Christianity. So the thinking might go, well, if we can get enough wealthy, rich people here, if we can get enough of the social elites in our gathering, then we'll gain some social credibility so that when people think of Christians, they think successful. They want to be part of us. Isn't this a great evangelism strategy? James says, once again in this rhetorical question, that the wealthy will not bring social social credibility to the church. Instead, they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you. When James talks about the wealthy blaspheming the good name that's invoked over Christians, he's not using blaspheme in terms of like taking 
the Lord's name in vain or in, you know, when someone smashes their finger on a hammer saying the name of Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's using blaspheme in its larger definition of speaking in a disrespectful way, speaking in a way that demeans or denigrates or maligns. And James is trying to say that Christians, your showing of favoritism to the social elites is not resulting in them speaking positively about Christ in Christianity. It actually results in them speaking negatively about Christ in Christianity. They speak about Christ in the church with contempt and scorn and disparagement. This impulse to try to gain social credibility in the church by attaching ourselves to the wealthy and the powerful is not something that's locked back in history. If anything, it's gotten worse. That's why there's countless examples of Christians tripping over themselves to grab onto any prominent public figure who ever does or says anything remotely Christian. In the long run, these figures generally do not bring credibility to Christianity, but instead they comport themselves in ways that discredit Christianity and produce disrespect for the name of Christ. This happens as Christians try to buy favor with movie stars, politicians, music artists, whoever it is that appears powerful in the moment. This happens all the time, and it almost always happens to the detriment of Christianity in the church. This point is one that is obviously relevant in in our nation, perhaps more than most other nations. Because we live in a place where we can connect either through social media or, or through news or something else with these figures, and we think that we can gain credibility through them, or we believe that they will be the means by which Christ builds the church. James says this is not the case. So I want to say very clearly and pointedly, if you believe that Christians— should try to ingratiate themselves with public figures, and that in doing so, it will lead to the good of the church, you're misled. You're wrong. It doesn't matter if that politician seems like he cares about what you care about. It doesn't matter if that musician quotes a few lines of the Bible in one of their songs. It doesn't matter if that movie star shows up at your church someday Tying yourselves to them in believing that God will use them to grow the church is irrational. It's not how God has ever grown the church, and he's not changing his plan now. So it may appear that connection to the wealthy will bring social credibility to Christ's name, but in reality, it usually results in the blasphemy of Christ's name. So showing favoritism is irrational, He then advances another argument, not just that it's irrational, but that favoritism isn't biblical. Favoritism isn't biblical. It goes against the royal law prescribed in Scripture. When James talks about this royal law, he's talking about the Torah as explained and articulated and interpreted by Jesus. At the heart of the law— are the kingly commands of our King Jesus that govern the life of the kingdom. 
This is what I'm trying to say. The, the kingly values prescribed in this royal or kingly law are summed up in these two things. To love God with your entire being and to love your neighbor as yourself. So you enter the kingdom by loving God. Those who love God are the ones who are promised the kingdom. And in the kingdom, you're to comport yourself in a way that's defined by loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus taught this. James is re-articulating it here. And as he starts out in verse 8, you might think that James is speaking positively to his readers. I would submit to you that you should read this with sarcasm in your voice in the same way that you later read when James is talking about the person who says that they have faith. And James says, good for you, even the demons believe. He's saying that sarcastically. Here, it seems that people are saying, as we show favoritism towards the wealthy, aren't we loving them? Aren't we doing what the Bible says? We're showing them love. Well, James says, okay, you're loving, good for you, but you're not doing it properly in the same way that if you say you have faith, but you don't have works, you don't get faith. If you think that you're obeying the command to love is you show favoritism, you've either misunderstood the command to love or you've intentionally misconstrued it to try to make it appear like the Bible supports your embodiment of worldly values. This is a word of condemnation from James. He's saying that if you partly obey this one command, but you fail to obey it fully, so you partly obey it by loving the wealthy, but you fail to fully obey it by also loving the poor, you're not obeying it at all. And what's true of that small command is proved by his analogy to the larger corpus of commands. If you obey just one of the Ten Commandments, but you break another, you're still a lawbreaker. Well, if you halfway obey the command to love your neighbor, and you don't fully do it by also loving the poor person, you're not obeying it at all. That's his point. The warning here, then, is that we can often try to rationalize or justify our ungodly behavior by twisting Scripture in a way that makes it seem like we're doing what the Bible says. We assign Bible verses to our wrong behavior in hopes that we can justify and perpetuate that behavior and salve our conscience. So we might say, when that wealthy person walks into our church, we're loving them. We're obeying the command to love when, when we invite them to sit with us. And we don't need to feel bad about overlooking the poor person. Well, James tells us, you are convincing yourself that you're, you're a law-keeping, a scripture-obeying, word-doing person. But the fact is that in God's eyes, it's not true. You're not doing the word. You're failing to do the word. You're a law breaker. You're not living according to the kingdom law. You're really more like an outlaw. So he very pointedly says that if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We might be tempted to think that this matter of favoritism is a small thing that it's one of those little sins that doesn't really matter that much. It isn't, after all, adultery or murder. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying 
if you have to pick favoritism or murder, go murder somebody. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that often we minimize the significance of the sin of favoritism because we don't recognize that it gets to the very heart of God's desire for his people to love one another. Favoritism prevents that from happening. Favoritism is a sin that does not allow us to live out that fundamental call to love one another. I think there is a misconception at the very bottom of this that rereads the command to love your neighbor as yourself. It rewrites the command to be love your neighbor for yourself. Love your neighbor for what you can get out of that person. Love your neighbor for what they have to offer you. But the kingly law, referred to earlier and later as the law of freedom, is a law that allows you to love one another free from thinking about yourself, allowing you to be for that other person instead of you capturing them to be for you. Instead of treating them as an object that can meet your needs, you're now free for them as you walk in the perfect law of liberty. If you fulfill this command, Christ gives you freedom from wealth, from the desire to be accepted by the wealthy and the popular and the cool. Freedom from being captivated by this desire to advance in society. Freedom to be truly for your neighbor. That's the way we ought to obey this law. James then concludes his argument with two aphorisms. Aphorisms are just brief statements that pack a lot of truth together, and they seem somewhat disconnected, so we have to, we have to work hard to piece some, some things together. So he says that because favoritism is a sin, faith and favoritism don't mix, favoritism isn't rational, favoritism isn't biblical, you need to speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom, a law that excludes favoritism. So faithfulness to Christ and his kingly law will exclude favoritism. But how do these two aphorisms, that judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment fit into these things? Sometimes I just have to ask you to hold on tight as we get through something complicated. This is one of those sections. Because what's going on is James is reading the Old Testament. We know that he refers to it all the time but he's probably reading it in Greek. So he's reading a translation of the Old Testament. So he's using a Greek word that translates a Hebrew word, and the Greek word can mean multiple things, and we have to try to get the nuance of what James is doing because he's doing a play on words here. I apologize that it's this complicated, but this is life anytime we're dealing with translation. In the Hebrew Bible, there's a word that a lot of people know. Um, Grab anyone with a Hebrew tattoo, and you'll probably find it on there. It's a word, hesed. It's often translated as faithful love or steadfast love or covenant faithfulness or loving kindness. God's hesed. Well, that that word is translated into Greek with the word elias. Same thing. You'll find it on a thousand Greek tattoos on, on someone's forearm. Elias, in the New Testament, it's almost always translated mercy into English. But when we're dealing with someone who's using the Old Testament, we have to remember that sometimes he might be talking about mercy, mercy, and sometimes he might be talking about hesed, mercy, 
this covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. So with those things in mind, uh, this is how I think we should render this verse. I think he's trying to say, judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown steadfast love. So he's saying that God's judgment of you, according to the law, will be without mercy if you're the kind of person who is not keeping the law of steadfast love to your neighbor. So this helps us connect the aphorism to holding on to the faith, to being faithful, showing faithful love, and his later comments about demonstrating faith through works. With these two aphorisms, James is just teaching this. The person who has displayed loving kindness in their judgment of other people will have great confidence that when it's time for them to stand before God's judgment, that they too will be given a judgment of mercy and loving kindness. And it's in this way that steadfast love triumphs over judgment. So we show steadfast love instead of rendering judgments with evil thoughts that prevents us from showing steadfast love to all people, regardless of their external appearances. That's what he's getting at when he says you become a judge with evil thoughts. You're, you're not showing this steadfast love. So with that cleared up, we should ask, well, what are, what are these aphorisms doing? They are not teaching us systematic theology, teaching us that God's mercy and judgment are opposed to each other or something like that. Instead, these aphorisms, these brief statements, are invitations for us to write our own parables about how we relate to others. First, it helps us reconceive of the parable that James gave to imagine what it will be like when heaven comes down to earth, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In that story, God's kingdom values will dictate the verdicts that are rendered in every gathering. No longer will there be judges who will discriminate with evil thoughts against the poor. There will be no negative judgment based upon an external metric, whether that has to do with social status or skin color or money, or clothing, or any other thing. Instead, every Christian will value all people with the kind of kingdom equality that Jesus describes in his parable and that James urges here. The story can be retold so that both the wealthy and the poor are treated as fully human. They'll both be shown an abundance of steadfast love and kindness. This is the story that the aphorisms lead us to write in our own lives. But they also cast our vision forward to a future story. A different kind of gathering where we are not the ones making the judgment, but it is King Jesus who is the speaker as he stands before the gathering of saints. This time, though, it's not a poor person and a wealthy person that walk into the gathering. It's you. And when you walk in, you wait to hear what King Jesus has to say. He might say, you have pursued the kingdom of God and his righteousness and fulfilled my kingly law. Enter into my joy. You belong here. Or he might say, you have violated my kingly law by denying belonging to others based on these external metrics. 
depart from me, you lawbreaker. I never knew you. That's the story that James tells us to envision. He warns us that our actions in this life have real impact on the day of judgment. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. So how should we do that? I want to give you four suggestions about how you and I can operate as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. First, we have to push hard against categorizing and treating people according to the world's value systems, regardless of where you encounter these people, but especially in the context of our gatherings as a church. We cannot construct standards of belonging in this assembly that are based on wealth or appearance or social niceties or ethnicity or any other thing. We should never deny someone belonging or welcome in this assembly based on their social desirability in our culture at large or any other thing. Most commentators, when writing on this text, just say it's hard to know where to start and where to stop in applying this specifically because favoritism isn't just working itself out in terms of wealth and poverty, but virtually every other single issue you can imagine. The church has often failed to do this at large. That's why James is writing about it from the very beginning. There are some sectors of Christianity where the metric of belonging is going to be wearing a suit and a tie and a nice dress so that you fit the business class of the world. Though usually, at least in my experience, we just do that in a more shoddy way because we can't buy the nice suits. We, we can't actually do it well. In other places, it's going to be the metric of you need to dress like all the social Instagram influencers and all the rest. So it's not wearing a business suit, but it's wearing all of the cool and fancy clothing, and we should want everyone in our church to fit the brand, so really only welcome those people that come already fitting the brand. This cannot be in our church. We cannot allow this to happen. Second, resist categorizing and viewing yourself according to the world's value system. Instead, embrace your new identity in Christ in the kingdom metrics that come with it. Don't evaluate your worth and your value, who you are, in terms of socioeconomics. Don't, don't try to find your identity in the brand of clothing that you wear. Don't try to find it in the products that you own. Because your worth is not in what you own. Instead, find it in the fact that you belong to Christ and his kingdom. As I already mentioned, James isn't decrying wealth or any nice things, but I think he certainly would argue against flaunting those things, especially when you come to gather with other Christians here. This is true for all of us, but I think especially for those of you who are in like junior high, going into high school, it's, it is hard out there because everyone tells you that you are only worth as much as the coolness that you carry with you. That's not true. Your, your worth is not based on whether or not you're wearing the right brand of clothing or you watch the right, the right TV shows or anything else. The sad fact is that most of us never really grow out of that. 
and we keep defining ourselves and others in terms of these worldly values, the fact is that the world and its values are passing away, and none of that will be around in the end. So resist viewing yourself and valuing yourself according to that system. Third, want to call you to resist, resist conceiving of your actions in this life as if they don't matter for the life to come. We want to be careful. We'll talk about this in five weeks when we pick up this series again, when we talk about the relationship between faith and works and justification. But James wants to be clear. If you don't abide by kingdom values now, why, would, why do you think that you would want to be in the kingdom in the future? If you are marking out belonging in the church and the kingdom of God based on something other than Christ does, why, why do you think that you're going to fit in a kingdom that's not marked out by those same things? How we live in this life actually does matter. So don't say, well, we're part of the world, we'll just live according to their system. We're at their mercy. No, we subvert that system and we live out the kingdom values now, knowing eventually we'll stand before the king who gives us those values. Then finally, I would encourage you to allow your weekly participation in the Lord's Supper to remind you of your new identity and the new identity of everyone else who's gathered with us that we've inherited in Christ. The Lord's Supper is a meal that the church shares, that draws us together, that shows our unity despite any external differences. In fact, this is the issue that Paul takes on in 1 Corinthians 11, where the wealthy are excluding the poor at the Lord's Supper. And Paul condemns them for humiliating the church of God, the poor that God has called. He teaches us that at the table, we no longer look at each other as who we are, but we look at one another as the body of Christ. That's what it means to discern Christ's body, so that when you look at the person next to you, you don't see them defined by what they're wearing or what they own. You see them as a part of Christ's body. That's what happens when we gather here. So the musicians are going to come, those who will pass the plates, and, and Josh will come in a second, and we are going to sing again that song, My worth is not my own, in what I own. Our worth is not found in those things. It's found in who we are, which is the body of Christ. And we're re reminded of that every week. So let's remain in our seats. Let's sing together as we receive the body that reminds us of our unity in Christ.